Welcome to the Runner's World Show, where each week we entertain you, inspire you, and inform you about all things running. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. This week, the second installment in our series about my moonshot marathon, or my attempt to finally qualify for Boston. In this segment, I undergo yet more tests and begin to train in earnest, or at least that was the plan. Then in the kick, a look at the top 10 biggest road races in the United States. While some are no-brainers, others on the list will definitely surprise you. But first, an interview with marathoner Matt Yano. Runner's World contributing editor Scott Douglas talked with Matt last fall, the day after he ran the New York City Marathon. They talked about the value not only of setting lofty goals, but of going public with them. I think when you put your goals out there, it kind of makes them very tangible and very real. Um, when you keep them to yourself, I think there can be a part of yourself that maybe maybe believes it's true, maybe doesn't believe it's true, but I think um, when you put it out there, it just really helps to solidify that this is what I'm trying to do, I'm not afraid to talk about it. I think that that all kind of plays in your mind on race day and you, you think back on all the people that are cheering for you and rooting for you and um, I think that's only going to help you know, achieve a better result on race day. As someone who has recently made his own very ambitious goal very public, I found this interview both encouraging and reassuring. So stick around and thanks for joining us. Matt Yano has plenty of talent as a runner, but more than that, he's got grit. The guy just keeps working hard and dreaming big. The 28-year-old marathoner ran a breakthrough 61-minute half marathon in 2014 at the USA Half Marathon Championships in Houston, just a month after coming out as the first openly gay professional American distance runner. That same year, he ran his first marathon, and he made a bold pronouncement. He said he wanted to break the American record for a debut marathon in that race. At the time, Ryan Hall held that record. He ran the 2007 London Marathon in 2.08.47, and Ryan Hall still holds that record because Matt ran his debut in Chicago in 2.17. But the following year, Matt nabbed a huge PR. He ran 2.12.28 in Berlin, and in 2016, he finished sixth in the Olympic Marathon Trials in Los Angeles. And in November, he ran the New York City Marathon. But the day didn't go as planned. Matt ran 2.20.15. But he wasn't discouraged. Instead, Matt, who trains in Flagstaff, Arizona, as a member of the Hoka One One Northern Arizona Elite Team under Coach Ben Rosario, sat down to talk with Scott Douglas the day after the marathon. Scott had recently written a piece about Matt for Runner's World. And in their conversation, they talked about coming out, falling short of your goals, and continuing to dream big. Before your first marathon, you said very openly, I want to try to break Ryan Hall's American debut record in the marathon. And a lot of people would think, maybe he should have aimed for 214 in his first marathon instead of 208. What's the th what is the thinking behind setting such big goals and being very public about them? How does that help you? Well, in that in that first marathon, um, I think I was I uh, initially said I was aiming for sub two ten, and um, if I was on pace for that, then uh, I would really try and reach and 
then I could see maybe Ryan's record coming into play, but um, obviously it didn't pan out that way. But um, for me, it's just, you know, I don't see any harm in setting really lofty goals. I'm not afraid to fail, um, I'm, or I'm not afraid to uh, go for something really big and, and not achieve it, because I think that um, being in this sport, we just, you know, we have to aim high and and sometimes we're going to knock it out of the park and we're going to we're going to get we're going to get there and sometimes we're not um but i don't see any harm in in going for it and falling short and why be public about that instead of tell two of your training partners and your parents uh well i think part of that is is kind of the culture of our team we're very open about everything we're open about all of our training um, we put out we put out videos. We we do voiceovers where we talk about our goals and we talk about uh, the workouts themselves and um, what they're kind of setting up setting us up to do. And um, so I think part of that kind of comes from my team and from my coach, but um, also just you know it's uh, part of having people along along on the journey. And um, I think when you when you put your goals out there, it kind of makes them very tangible and very real. Um, when you keep them to yourself, I think there's a, uh, there can be um, a part of yourself that maybe maybe believes it's true, maybe doesn't believe it's true. But I think um, when you put it out there, it just really helps to solidify that this is what I'm trying to do. I'm not afraid to talk about it. I think that that all kind of plays in your mind on race day. And you, you think back on all the people that are cheering for you and rooting for you. And um, I think that's only going to help you know achieve a better result on race day. What's an example of when you publicly set a very big goal and did achieve it, and and perhaps having done having done so uh, allowed a performance that may not have happened otherwise? I mean, I think um, a lot of the a lot of the biggest goals that I've talked about have been marathon related, um, and I've still fallen short on a couple of those. Um, I still think it's in me, but uh, hasn't all come together on race day yet. But um, I think one of them uh, probably would have been. Um, the Houston half marathon in 2014, um, I wanted to run 62:30 in that race, um, and make the world team. And that was kind of the, the bigger goal at the time was just to make the world team. And, um, there were some other factors that came into play there, but, uh, I ended up running 61:47 and making the world team. So, um, you know, that was one of those scenarios where everything was kind of just coming together and, and I had a huge amount of support behind me and that kind of just pushed me over the finish line. Uh, is it true that some of this, some of your thinking about goals you learned uh, from your friendship with Shalene Flanagan? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I'm always trying to learn from other people in the sport, and certainly Shalane has had a bit, big impact on me. Um, we became friends a couple years ago, bonding over food. Um, and yeah, just kind of this friendship blossomed, and I've, and I've gone to her for advice all along the way about marathoning and um, just running careers in general and little things that you can do along the way and goal setting. And um, I think she's said in interviews before as well, um, you know, she one of her biggest bucket, bucket list items has been to win the Boston Marathon. And um, she's never been afraid to say that. Um, she's not done it yet, but she's she's tried every time she's gone there um, and she's not done yet. So um, I draw a lot of inspiration from that. And, um, you know, if someone like her can set lofty goals and and go for it and still fall short, then, um, you know, that's something that I feel um, inspired myself to do. And and one of these days, it's all going to come together. So we're talking the day after the New York City Marathon, where uh, you briefly were in the, you know, you and Dathan Ritzenheim were sharing the lead. 
and then you wound up not having a good day and running 220, I think it was. Mm -hmm. In that situation, do you enter races with a series of tiered goals? Um, so you have your ultimate goal. Do you have then a, sort of a, a stepping stone of goals so that you don't give up or continue to find a way to motivate yourself? Yeah, I think it's always beneficial to have tiers of goals. Um, usually I set a goal that I think I can achieve um, on a good day. Um, and then I kind of start there and then I, I kind of flush it out both ways. And so I'll start there and then I have a reach goal. Um, so my, my main goal t yesterday was top five. Uh, my reach goal was top three. Um, and then, uh, you know, you kind of have to make adjustments along the way. And when I realized I wasn't having a good day, um, maybe around around the halfway point um, during the race yesterday. I just had to kind of adjust on the fly and by 18 miles, my goal was just to finish. Um, it was just one of those days I knew that it was gonna be really tough um, and I, I gutted it out and uh, you know, I had people passing me and I just said, just don't stop. You know, I saw a couple people drop out along the way and um, I just didn't wanna be one of those, uh, one of those statistics of people who don't finish the marathon. And so um, it was probably the hardest uh, eight miles of my life, harder than Chicago probably uh, in my first one. And that was, that was tough at the time. So um, the miles just kept getting longer and longer and longer, especially once you got into Central Park. Still in a weird way, proud that I finished, but um, obviously not the result that I wanted. Um, a, a sort of a, a, a perhaps cynical response to, you know, you're saying I'm not afraid to fail. You, you said that when we talked for a Runners World print piece as well is, um, you know, a counter argument could be, well, how many times do you have to fail before you think I should recal you know, recalibrate? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Um, and it's, it's a hard one to answer. Uh, I'm just, I'm not one to hold myself back and, and go for goals that I can't get excited about. And um, if I came here today and uh, maybe this is my, na my naivety in, in running the New York City Marathon, but um, if I had come here today and, or yesterday and said um, my goal is to finish top 15 or, you know, I just wouldn't have been as excited about it through the whole marathon buildup. And um, I had the best buildup of my life. Um, I knew I was really fit and ready to go. I, I definitely made some tactical errors on race day and having not seen the first 16 miles of the course, I think was a detriment to me. Um, I saw the last 10 back in September, um, but just underestimated a lot of factors in the first 16 miles. Um, but it was a great learning experience and I always try to find a takeaway um, from each race, whether it's a success or a failure. Um, I would say yesterday was the latter of those, but uh, a learning experience nonetheless, so not not a complete loss. As a professional athlete, you have sort of that the second part, the, the you know the big goals and then the openness the, about them. You have a platform where you know uh, running fans uh, have you have an, an, an actual way to connect with a lot of people. What about for people who don't have that uh, you know the, the sort of built-in attention to their running? What what are ways that they can um, sort of achieve that? group support that comes from being open. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, uh, if you can talk to your friends and family about it, it doesn't have to be on this big stage. You don't have to have Runner's World writing an article about you in order for the for the, for the goal to be uh, real um, and tangible, like I was saying before. You know, it's, um, for me, it, it, it always starts with, like, writing it 
on a piece of paper and sticking it to my bathroom mirror, writing it on the mirror, or um, it starts small and then um, word kind of gets around Flagstaff and people are like, oh, he wants to do this. And, you know, it kind of just spreads from there. And so I think um, just starting with friends and family or, or anyone that you can be close with and you can um, you can get to rally behind you, I think is uh, really all that it's about. And, and I think the more support that you have, the more excited you can get about your goal and um, the more real that it can be. And, and it's kind of a, an accountability thing too. Like I was saying before, you know, you... Um, you can say you want to run 210 or, or whatever it might be, but do you believe it? I think it's uh, kind of that self-fulfilling prophecy of garnering support to really build your mental strength and, and kind of get yourself to believe it as much as anyone else might. Okay, so I'll, I'll play devil's advocate here. Uh, Mevka Flesky likes to say, under-promise and over-deliver, which sounds sort of the opposite of I'm going to tell, you know, he didn't say to the world, I'm going to win the Boston Marathon. Um, are there maybe people who are better suited to one approach than the other? Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, different different approaches. Uh, maybe that's one that I'll try in the future. I was, I was actually <laughs> thinking about that yesterday. I was like, maybe the next time I just won't say anything. I'll just, I'll fly completely under the radar. I won't tell anyone what marathon I'm going to do, and I'm just going to show up and I'm going to do it. Um you know, that's certainly another approach and, and maybe it would work, maybe it wouldn't. Um, but, uh, you know, who's to say until it actually happens? When we talked for the Runners World print piece, you talked about how openness in another aspect of your life, namely coming out as gay, had a, a profound positive effect on on your running. Can you talk a little bit about that um, from the standpoint of, you know, sort of public honesty having some effect on, on what's capable athletically. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, growing up for a long time, I didn't, I never really felt like I had, um, a place in sports really. Um, just kind of always felt like an outcast a little bit. So, um, once I made the decision to first come out to my family and then to come out publicly, um, I think that it just, uh, kind of took down this this wall that I had built. It took down this barrier and um, just allowed me to like have more confidence in myself and and believe that I was good enough for whatever I was trying to do and um, just to feel worthy of of these pursuits, um, which for a long time I I didn't feel. Um, and then yeah, it was just really seeing other athletes and other sports coming out and having success and being embraced and um, nothing changing really for them um, in the way of like being treated differently per se. Um, but I think that, you know, you can almost look at it objectively at a lot of, in, in many different cases of people who have come out and just found that that relief uh, has led to you know, other successes in their life personally and professionally. And so um, for me, it was just a matter of of trying to lift that weight off my shoulders and see if that would lead to a performance breakthrough. And um, it did in my case. It was right before the Houston Half Marathon that I talked about earlier where I ran a two-minute personal best, uh, made the world team. And, you know, I think it's it's hard to say that that didn't factor into that that performance. Now, I know that you subsequently heard from other runners uh, particularly younger runners saying, you know, thank you. And, you know, I, I now am inspired by you. Have you heard from anybody that, you know, 
you inspired me to be open about some other aspect of my life that then had an effect on my running. Yeah, I, I heard from a lot of people. I still hear from a lot of people. Um, and it's not all it's not always that they're gay or that they have a family member who's gay and that they are trying to find a way to support them. But it's um, yeah, I mean, I won't go into specifics, but it, there there are a, a bunch of people out there who um, struggle with a lot of different things. And um, if my coming out is in any way relatable to that, um, I have encouraged them to reach out to me and they have. And um, I'm not to say that I'm like the uh, the best person to always give advice, but I'll try. Um, and if it can help them in some way, or, um, even just if it gives them someone to talk to, then I'm happy to be that person. And I, I don't want to, uh, seem like I'm Mr. Downer. Um, I, and so I think our listeners should know a couple of things that I learned when we talked. Um, you know, you were, you were pretty good in high school, but you were also a multi-sport athlete. And you said, I'm going to commit myself to running. And just as an aside, you had a very interesting teammate. Who was that? Uh, that was Matt Centrowitz. Yeah, I'm imagining is who you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. My high school teammate, the Olympic champion. Uh, and then, and then you, you know, you graduated from college, and your 10 KPR was 2843. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. So pretty good, but not you weren't a star. And within a couple of years after college, you just said, you know what? I'm going to move to Flagstaff and become a marathoner. And now you're a 212 marathoner. So, you know, you set these sort of, I'm going to do this, and, it, and it's worked out really well. So it's, it's, it's really cool to see that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, sometimes the goals don't always come as quickly as we'd like them to, but I think, uh, you know, just sticking to it long term, which has always been my focus, um, generally leads, to, leads you down the right path. And, and if I never run 210, um, I'll be bummed about that. But, uh, you know, I'll, I'll know that I've given it everything that I could, and um, I'll have no regrets about it. That was Runner's World contributing editor Scott Douglas speaking with marathoner Matt Yano. To read Scott's piece on Matt, go to runnersworld.com slash audio. Next up, part two of my moonshot quest, where I learn some new habits, unlearn some old ones, and get a bit of sobering news. If you listen to episode 38, you know that I am embarking on a personal moonshot to qualify for the 2018 Boston Marathon with a lot of help from a team of coaches, scientists, and product designers at Nike who are working feverishly to help three elite marathoners break the two-hour barrier. If you didn't listen to episode 38, you might want to go back and start there. This episode and future episodes on my quest will make a lot more sense if you do. Also, I'm not just documenting my own experience here. That's part of it, for sure, but I'm also turning myself into a marathoning guinea pig of sorts. I want to demystify some of the science and philosophies behind cutting-edge human performance in the hopes that this will help you with your own moonshots, whatever they are. Because even though those three elites who will be trying to run 159.59 differ from regular runners in countless ways, the physiological principles that make them fitter and faster and stronger, they apply to us as well. There's a lot we can learn from the best runners on earth and from the specialists who go to work every day 
with the sole intention of making them better. Okay, so I will go for my BQ at the Bayshore Marathon in Traverse City, Michigan on May 27th. To qualify for Boston, I will need to run that race in under three hours and 30 minutes. Now, I've been trying to BQ for a decade, and it has not gone well. I've made lots of mistakes over the years, and running marathons is nothing if not making and learning from mistakes. My most recent attempt was in 2013 at the Marine Corps Marathon, where I blew up, as usual, in the final miles and finished in 339. After some time had gone by and I was able to look back with some detachment, I realized that I simply hadn't been ready to run a BQ. I had trained, of course, but the bottom line is that I hadn't trained properly not quite hard enough or smart enough or consistently enough. Too often I overtrained or cut corners because of my busy work life and family life, thinking that my desire would carry me through. It didn't, and it was a tough thing to come to grips with. This moonshot is all about doing everything right. It's about training harder, but more importantly, smarter. That means lots of data and a super tailored training plan that isn't just about ramping up my mileage week after week. To begin collecting data, I took a very painful treadmill test at Nike headquarters outside Portland, Oregon on November 30th. I found out I'm in decent and even better, improvable shape, at least aerobically speaking. Among other things, I learned about my lactate threshold. The Nike specialists who were guiding my training told me that we would focus specifically on improving my lactate threshold. That's another way of saying that we would be doing certain types of workouts to improve my highest sustainable pace. That way, running under 8-minute pace for 26.2 miles, as I will need to do in May, will feel, if not easy, then at least comfortable. So that Portland trip taught me a lot about my aerobic engine but we also needed to assess my body and my running form. The structure, my chassis, if you will, to continue the automotive metaphor. I'm 49, and I don't move as fluidly as I used to. So in mid-January, I spent two days in New York City with two other Nike coaches. For the prior six weeks, I had been building a base, just doing easy runs and one long run a week and maybe one speed workout. I was really anxious to dive into my actual training. I met first with Joe Holder, a Nike trainer, performance specialist, and health consultant at a gym in Lower Manhattan around 7.30 a.m. How are you, Joe? Good to see you, man. Ready to work this morning? I'm ready. I'm a little nervous, but I'm ready. Hey, man, first step's always the best one, no? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Let's do it. Got to know where we start, right? <laughs> yes, sir. In addition to being a coach with Nike, yeah, Joe well, is an incredible athlete. He was a junior Olympian in track, and in college he played wide receiver at the University of Pennsylvania on teams that won multiple Ivy League titles. His mission with Nike is to build what he calls well-rounded athletes. He will be helping me with strength training and nutrition, and this meeting was just to take inventory to see where I was. First, we did a body composition test. This test measured stuff like my skeletal muscle mass, body fat mass, and water distribution. Turns out I have 11% body fat, which is pretty good, but Joe was a little bit concerned that I had more body fat in my trunk than he would prefer. That's because Joe knows that I will lose several pounds during my training. I weighed in at about 167 but he does not want me to lose too much muscle mass in the process. So we will work on getting leaner, but also stronger up top. 
but overall, Joe was pretty pleased. After that, it was on to my next test, but first I had to warm up with high knees and side shuffle. I did a max pull-up test, a max push-up test, and then we began a functional movement screening, or FMS for short. The goal of the test was to see how easily and athletically my body functions as a whole. The FMS would also reveal any strength or flexibility imbalances that could potentially lead to injuries during training down the road. The test is made up of seven moves. My ability to complete each move is assessed on a scale of zero to three, with three being the best score for a highest possible overall score of 21. I had never taken an FMS before, and I really had no idea how I was going to do. So Joe led me through a series of pretty awkward-looking poses. While I was holding a bar over my head, I did a series of deep squats, inline lunges, and then put the bar down and did what are called trunk stability push-ups. Weird push-ups with my arms out in front of me. I felt okay doing these moves, although I felt a little bit of pain in my lower back, and I definitely felt a little bit of instability on my right side when I was doing the lunges. I definitely didn't feel like I was acing this test by any means. Uh, this one's going to be, nobody could do this one, I guess. <laughs> so this one's rotary stability. See, he says stuff like that and it makes me want to do it. <laughs> this one is a fun one. So, so we're going to take this two by six, okay? And you're going to get in this quadruped position like you got in a hit for a downward dog, all that stuff. I'm down on all fours and Joe tells me to extend my right arm forward while also extending my right leg backward at the same time, like I'm flying. Yes, the arm and leg on the same side at the same time. There's no way. You're right. Now I understand why you say nobody can do it. flat back, position, okay? I mean, it doesn't feel possible. I couldn't do it at all. I then tried the same move diagonally, extending my right arm and my left leg. That was no problem, although I did feel some pain in my lower back and in my left hip this time. So Joe tells me to stop. That one's often a tough one for anybody yeah. that does it. Um, but because of the pain and because of the hip issue, it, um, it, it's, uh, we, that's one that we're really going to really gonna have to focus on. So did I score zero on the cross one as well? Because you had pain? you automatically get a zero in the FMS. It's not like, you don't think of it like I'm a, I'm a failure or anything. Yeah, no, 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 I, I hear it's you. Just simply, it's just simply, if you're having pain, that's always uh, always a flag yeah. um, with anything that you do as an athlete. So you can't ignore what your body's saying, okay? Finally, we made it through all the moves and I got my final score. Again, the best possible score is a 21. A score of 14 or above is considered acceptable. It says you are not at high risk of injury. Scoring below 14 says you are at a high risk of injury. So then on this final score of the FMS right now, because that rotary stability kind of hit him with a zero, you kind of you have a total score of a 13, which is a little bit of a, a red flag. And you have one asymmetry kind of in that inline lunge. So you want to attack the pain in the rotary stability and the asymmetry in the inline lunge, which you kind of noted too when you were um, doing, yeah. doing the test. Okay. Wow, a 13? Okay, here's what Joe was saying. I'm a little bit of a mess. As any doctor or physical therapist will tell you, when it comes to the muscular systems that help us move as runners, everything is connected. 
I walked into the gym that morning with recurring lower back pain and chronically tight shoulders, hips, and quads. Joe said that my thoracic spine, which runs between your shoulder blades, needs some air. (laughs) He means it's too tight. He means it's locked up. It means it is keeping me from moving athletically. So Joe will devise a stretching and strength training program for me to follow, in addition to all the running that I'll be doing. So we know we got, and I think I'm going to hand you over to Coach Julia. All right. Have fun. It's a little chilly. Okay, so we'll be heading this way. We head out onto the busy streets of lower Manhattan as a light rain starts to come down. Julia Lucas is the Nike Plus Run Club East Coast head coach. I first met her at the Olympic track and field trials in Eugene, Oregon in July. Julia has also had an incredible career as an elite athlete. She ran track at NC State and then as a professional. Her PR in the 5,000 meters was 15.08, and in the 1,500 meters, it was 4.05. Julia just missed making the U.S. Olympic team in 2012 in the 5,000 meters by just .04 seconds. At the time, it was believed to be the smallest margin any distance runner had ever missed an Olympic team by. In fact, my conversation with her about that heartbreaking race was in episode 13 of the Runner's World show. Before we set off, Julia explained her role in my training. Basically, she will be my primary running coach, and she will communicate regularly with Joe and with members of the Breaking 2 team at Nike to devise and adjust my training plan. Okay, so again, I am following you uh so the best program is going to build on what you're already doing to take like a quote wrong program and turn it into a quote right program with no bridge between the two is just recipe for disaster it's not actually a right program so i'm gonna watch what you do look for anything that i think is um could be improved upon and then we'll make small changes that uh that intelligently move you from the athlete you are today to the athlete you will be with your BQ. I'm going to be on the podcast singing. Damn it. <laughs> Many times. Many times. We Not hope. the last time we I hope. sing. <laughs> are you going to be looking at my form? I'm going to be looking at your form. I'm going to be paying attention. You know, I don't want to bias you. I want you to do everything okay. normally. Okay. We'll talk about it afterwards. Uh, I want you to run like I'm not here. Okay. All right. We do an easy four-miler along the Hudson River before stopping by the waterfront. The purpose of this workout was simply for Julia to see how I got through a run from beginning to end, including my pre-run warm-up routine. For the past couple years, I've always done the same thing before every run. A series of leg swings to the side, leg swings front and back, some squats, some lunges, and a downward-facing dog. Julia watched me and said that she felt like I should change that up a little bit, that the leg swings probably belonged at the end of that series because they can cause some impingement in the hip flexor. She also told me to go a little bit deeper with my lunges and to make sure that I bent my trailing leg a bit more. So I filed that away and we began the run. She asked me to set an easy pace, and she just wanted to see what I defined as easy and how naturally I held that pace. I asked Coach Julia, how did I do? Well, I was glad to get out here away from the twists and turns and people dodging of urban trail running on the sidewalks (laughs) of New York City. (laughs) I just wanted to see 
how you moved and if we needed to make any very small tweaks to form because a small tweak is the most we would ever want to do, especially in a marathon cycle. Uh, and you look, you look good, David. Well done. <laughs> uh, the little changes that we're going to make are uh, making a little bit more of a difference between your easiest days and your hardest days. Uh, right now, on, a, on an easy everyday run, we want your stride to be to look inevitable, to look like it's flowing, um, to from a distance just look like it feels good. Uh, and we want it to feel good in you. Uh, so what I'm gonna have you do is just take the run, the pace that you have been running, which today was 8.10, and take it back about 15 seconds. Okay. And really try to feel in yourself an easier, inevitable, less emotionally taxing run. And that's hopefully gonna get into all your tissues, muscles, the way you move and really instill in your body that running can be an easy, fluid thing where there's no element of push. Uh, after a few weeks of doing that, we may be able to speed you back up. But for now, take your easy runs a little easier, your harder runs a little bit harder, and see where that leads us. Okay. Yeah, I, I, when, I always, when I get out there, my first miles, you know, 8.45, 8.50, warming up, and then... I get around 8.25, 8.30, but then toward the latter third or the end, I always, I want to speed up. You know, it feels good. I want to push it because pushing equals training progress, right? This is the distance runner mindset. This right. is the way, <laughs> this is the way it works. But just like in a marathon, so much of it is about patience and holding back. I want you to end most of your runs thinking I could go much longer. I've got, I've got a marathon in my legs. Yeah. Uh, when we work you hard, we'll work you hard. Don't worry. But your everyday runs are not about taking any energy from the well, but just adding to it. Okay. Okay, this is important. Again, before we did that four-mile run along the river, Julia asked me to set the pace, an easy pace. And as you heard, that pace was not easy enough. She wants me doing all my easy runs closer to 8.30 per mile pace. That's slower than I would want to do them. But this is what it means to train smarter. Every run has a purpose. And if I run my easy runs harder than necessary, I won't be able to do my hard runs as hard as necessary. Then our assessment continued. Julia and our producer, Sylvia, watched me do a series of strides out on one of the piers by the river. So what are you looking for here? I was running next to him, which can be really valuable. You really understand his total effort level, what I can hear, the way his feet are hitting the ground, his breath, uh, just get a sense from him of how much effort he's putting, putting out. So crank it up just a little bit. But now I get to see his mechanics, the way he moves. Right now I'm seeing that he's a little bit locked up in his thoracic spine. So that is going to be uh, mostly work that he does when he's not running, stretching out, doing some mobility work in the weight room with Coach Joe. But overall he looks really good. Uh, a lot of distance runners don't have much in the way of backside mechanics. They're just in front of themselves. One more and that effort is good. Uh, they spend all day sitting at a desk, uh, sitting in their car just they live in front of themselves so when they're running they still look like they're sitting down uh -huh. uh, and he has good extension he says he's uh, he's 
done work on his hips and glute in the past mm-hmm. using the runner's world there was like a seven tips article yeah. uh he uses those and i don't know what he looked like beforehand but right now he's he's really good and even for a, a long-term distance runner cool all right you have one thing you have a locked up thoracic spine and other than that you look really good you see it when i'm doing sp- uh, a little bit of this too much side to side rotation at his waist that makes this my high school coach called it the drummer boy arms um rather than a front to back swing common problem we're gonna fix you that's not one that i'm really concerned about so you passed all right i'm sticking with you (laughs) (laughs) so there's my locked up thoracic spine again which means that when i run i waste energy and forward momentum because my upper body moves a bit side to side that's what julia meant by the drummer boy thing julia and i run back to my hotel to join joe and sylvia and to talk over breakfast about the morning's results and what happens next. At that point, I had been wearing a heart rate monitor for six weeks since my trip to Nike headquarters in Portland, and I'd been uploading data from every single run to my Garmin profile. My main purpose during that time was to build a solid base upon which I could start hard training. And the whole time, Joe and Julia had been observing the data from afar. I was really eager to see what they had been seeing in the numbers. It looks like we're dealing with an experienced runner. Uh, if you weren't as experienced as I know you are, I would be—I would have been worried that you'd leave Portland so gung-ho, ready to just nail every workout and peak hard and fall fast. But uh, you'd set up a nice, even base of what felt comfortable to you. Your heart rate never gets up too high. It looks like your workouts look very intentional, like you're setting up for future bigger workouts to come. A fun thing that we've noticed about you uh, in talking with the guys at the lab, you got some nerds on your side here, (laughs) Um, is so everyone has a specific rate of recovery, um, how how hard they work and how far they sort of fall in a well on their way to recovery. So you typically work hard, and then for the next two days are just bottomed out, have very little resources left in you. But then after that are really back to where you started. So your cycle is short and intense. Other people might be, uh, might have a little bit more left in the tank, but then take a week to recover. So your, um, your cycle is short and fast, and we can work with that. And we're not sure if that comes from the way in which you're running your workouts or your own specific physiology, but we will find that out along the way, just being there for your workouts, uh, seeing how complete an effort it is, seeing how you bounce back, and whether that changes along the way in the, in the larger cycle. Julia then went on to explain the overall tempo of my training plan. So in marathon training, instead of going hard and then easy and then hard and then easy and then hard and then easy, you want to kind of slow it down. So you go hard, you're in the well, and then you come halfway up, and have a, that secondary workout. Don't allow yourself to recover all the way. Then recover all the way. You want to sort of break up the time periods in order to hit, hit hit different systems, slow down the recovery. So when you do finally recover all the way, you get this avalanche of benefits. I knew from my test in November that I would improve my lactate threshold. Again, that is my fastest sustainable running pace. But I was curious about how fast I would be running in my workouts in order to improve lactate threshold. In my test, my threshold pace was 725. So does that mean that in these early weeks, we're going to be designing the speed work 
around 725 pace or we're going to be going faster than that or just slower than that where uh, how, how is 725 going to relate to the actual training i'll be doing you will run at 725 pace just bu- just above and just below um and that'll help just tease that number down but also we're going to give you some workouts that just flood you with lactate um and that will sh- right great <laughs> And that will shock your body into to, to learning how to deal with it, L- saying, like, I better, I better buff th- buffer this, I better clear this, um, you know, or else. <laughs> That's training adaptation. Um, and then we're also going to be attacking you in different ways. We're going to be um, producing a huge amount and then waiting for it to clear, and then producing a huge amount and then waiting for it to clear. We're also going to be producing a, 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 a solid amount and then giving you not much time and then making you rut, run again and deal with the consequences, right? So your body figures out how to clear it out on the move. Um, we're it, coming from so many different directions and it all really comes back to, to lactate, but, uh, but we're, we're really being creative and just, um, just toying with you in so many ways, figuring out how to you know, make lactic acid your, your friend. Taking all this in, I wanted to know. So based on what you guys have seen for six weeks and based on today, do you think that uh, a sub-330 is in the cards, possible, a reach? How, how would you, how would you describe it? I think it's viable, but I mean, I don't think you've ever done anything this methodical before. It'll be very interesting to see how you respond, and I think it'll go a long way once you just start to you know have a training plan that is really centered around this core objective and then you take a step outside of it and understand like if i'm going to get this done i have to do more than just run because you look at any other i mean look at you know anybody that's galen the mo they do or you know julia could tell you her stories they do a lot more than just run so yeah i think we got i mean we're, we're gonna get it done it's what we do coach <laughs> come on <laughs> what we do i'm very confident i just I, I'm excited to work with you. I'm excited to see. I think it's like a how low can we go question. I don't want us to think too specifically and deliberately about that time yet. Right now, we're building a better body. Um, later on in the program, we'll do more marathon-specific pace work. But uh, I, don't, I don't want your mind just fixed on that goal yet. Um, we're we're build, building you back build, from the ground up. Got to be an athlete will, first, brother. Yeah. <laughs> My conversation with Joe and Julia was fantastic. It was enlightening and encouraging. I felt really inspired by their steadfast belief in my being able to pull this thing off. But there was one other member of my team I was anxious to hear from, Brett Kirby. Brett is the head physiologist in the Nike Sports Research Lab, and his role as a member of my team was to be sort of the mastermind. He would talk regularly with Joe and Julia and he would look closely at all my data to help figure out what my workouts would be and how my 16-week plan would change going forward. I thought of him as the architect of this whole project. And when it came to running, Julia was a sort of project manager. Three days after talking with Julia and Joe and two days after doing my first real workout of the plan, it was three times eight minutes, but more on that in a moment, I connected with Brett on Skype. This was January 20th, and I wanted to know from his perspective, how was I doing? I think you're looking good. 
we can basically look back when you started with us from November through mid, um, let's say a little bit before Christmas time. Do a snapshot of how you were doing then, and then look within the last few weeks from prior to Christmas time to uh, about now. So in the last four weeks, it looks like you've made progress. What we don't quite know, and that's why it's a good conversation, it's always important for us to talk to you as the athlete and understand if you were just showing us more about you or if you were progressing. As far as I know, it looks like, as far as I can tell, you've done two efforts where you've specifically gone out to try to run pretty hard, right? Right. So Julia had me do two workouts with two weeks in between. Um, and I did the first one uh, on a Saturday morning, and it was a, a 2K. I thought of it as a time trial. I think you thought of it as a – called it a benchmark. Um, and it was a 15-minute warm-up and then two kilometers and then complete rest and then six 200-meter strides and then 15-minute cool-down. That was the workout. And the the first workout, I did the two-kilometer benchmark in eight minutes and 46 seconds. And it felt great. So I was really excited to go back two weeks later and do it again because I suspected that I could do better. Um, and I did. I, I did the 2K segment two weeks later, same track, also on a Saturday morning, um, in eight minutes and 22 seconds. So what does that tell you? It tells us a lot of info. So as you said, you've been wearing the GPS watch and the heart rate monitor. And we have now a reality of when you did your 2K, what's the true time that you were, got during your 2K? And then two weeks later, did you improve at all or were you still tired? So these little benchmark tests or this time trial, if you think of it, helps us better understand um, how your body's adapting to the training we're giving you. And then we can start to make prescriptions off of learning from your body. How, how does this training approach, how is it different from, you know, a Jack Daniels approach? What makes this distinctive? Historically, when we think of any coach in any training program, we do a few basic principles. We're always trying to observe the athlete, trying to learn about that athlete, make some educated guess, and then as a coach, I make a recommendation. What we're doing here at Nike and in our program is trying to improve the precision of that. Rather than just making an educated guess, can we make an evidence-based uh, prediction or a forecast about how we anticipate your body will actually respond to the training we give you? So by you wearing your watch and your heart rate monitor, it's more now than just a little gimmick that you say, oh, cool, this is exciting. I know I'm going 720 pace. Great. Or my heart rate's at 150. Those are cool features, but they don't necessarily help us all the time. So we're trying to take it to the next level and say, what do we do with this info? By you wearing the, the equipment, we'll call it, you're letting us into seeing your body. How does your body respond to every workout? And now we can learn about how your body responds. The body responds typically in two ways. Number one, when you do your a certain workout, so today you go out for a run, you're going to have some type of fatigue associated with that run. Your calves might be a little sore. You might feel a little bit extra winded as you walk up the stairs later in the day. You may have to hunch over, right? The quads are tired if you did some hills. Those types of features that are associated with some degree of fatigue, right? The second feature is you gain some type of fitness. 
But the fitness we don't usually see within maybe the 24 hours, it maybe takes some days to accomplish, maybe even takes weeks to months for the body to have the great adaptations that we expect. We get more blood volume, we get new blood vessels, the muscles grow, all those kinds of things. That takes time. So what we're starting to do is understand when you do your workout, what's going to happen? How long does your body stay tired? And how long does it take for you, David, before you get the benefits of that single workout you just did today? Those types of things help us learn about you and essentially give you a customized or individualized fingerprint about your training program. As we then take step two, we take that information about you and we can make predictions about how we actually expect you to respond. So in working with Joe and Julia and our team, now we have a true idea of let's give you this particular workout today. And we know it's going to have this training stress on your body and we can expect a great body response or body adaptation in about 30 days from now. It's not far from traditional observation and then recommendation. It's the same kind of thing, except it's really under the hood trying to get real personalized. Got it. Great. Makes sense to me. Yeah. So it sounds like we're going to be trying a few different things. We're going to be trying some short, intense workouts. We're going to be trying some longer uh, presumably not as hard workouts, but I don't know. Maybe you're, we're, maybe we're going to be trying long and intense as well right off the bat and just sort of see how I respond to it. <laughs> we realized that the number one area that we can make adjustments in was your lactate threshold or lactate turn point regions. We want to go with what we know we can make adjustments in and get the most bang for the buck, what has the biggest opportunity, and we think that's your area to raise your threshold or what we would say your sustainable pace. So I, I think was it just recently you did something where it was a threshold workout three by eight minutes at the threshold pace? Yep. I did that yep. yesterday. Yep. Great. So let's talk about that because this is going to be a staple in the program. What was that like for you trying to hold that pace? Is it unfamiliar? Is this common workout or, or uncommon? It felt a little weird. You know, I couldn't quite dial in 720. I hit 720 a little bit on my watch, but more often than not, I was at 650. I was at 735 or 740. And I didn't struggle too much holding it for eight minutes. And so I successfully finished each interval, but it did not feel good. It felt like I was kind of flailing a little bit. Yeah, I can relate to that. I I understand. Running threshold workouts is, is sometimes difficult because we as athletes – find it to be uncomfortable sometimes because if we think about what that means from the body, we're basically on the, the, the true threshold. We're on the threshold between a sustainable pace that I can hold for a long period of time versus a pace that I know is going to blow up and I will not make it. And we're really pushing that boundary and just kind of riding that like red line if we want. And the more we do that, the more that kind of stuff really will pay off. In our marathon training so that's going to be the threshold type of workouts are going to be bread and butter because one we know that we can help you there two it's really critical for marathon performance three it's also tolerable so if we do high intensity speed workouts we need more rest we need more recovery so you have to delay and create more days before we can do the next workout threshold workouts sometimes we uh, can have a little bit of less time we can recover a, qu- a little bit f- quicker from that But in marathon performance, we're really focused on the highest sustainable pace. So physiologically, what's going on is we're we're buffering hydrogen ions, 
and we're sort of balancing the, the delivery of oxygen and blood flow to the tissue while maintaining things like our blood pressure as well at the same time. If it's hot out, we're trying to dissipate heat. So all these, we're really like towing the line between trying to do a lot of things in the body, but be able to sustain it for a long time. So the threshold workout is teaching the body that I can sustain this and we're going to elongate it from eight minutes to to another eight minutes to another and slowly build those blocks out so that when you're in the marathon, you're like, no problem. I've done two by 20 minute blocks with significant rest and maybe done another 20 minute block. And so you get really familiar with doing these threshold workouts that are actually slightly higher than maybe the marathon intensity. And then it's, it feels okay to you when you actually get in your race. Okay. Julia used a term with me, lactate buffering. And you just mentioned buffering hydrogen ions. What is buffering? So this is a good question. Buffering means essentially removal. So we're saying that we need to find a way to remove hydrogen ions. Hydrogen ions are essentially the acid-producing agents in the body. So when we're working too hard, the body produces lactate. And we're not able to maintain the clearance or the removal of lactate at a sustainable rate. But it's not necessarily the lactate that's the problem. It's really what we say, hydrogen ions, really the acid. That's the problem. And when we start getting really too many of these hydrogen ions are producing too much acid, then that's indicative of like, oh, we're in trouble. We're not going to be able to hold this pace for long. Right. And that's that's that awful sensation that any athlete has felt, right? And, and it's like a burning in, in the muscles, but it's also just this sense that, oh, oh, my God, I'm about to blow up. I have to take my foot off the gas. Exactly. Okay. All right. So we want to have you to have training loads that we know will improve performance and also unlikely to lead you to injury. Okay. And if we need to make any tweaks, then we can make tweaks as we continue to lead up. The analogy I like to do with this, and you're going to get this, David, is think about a GPS tracking, a Google Maps. You're at your location, at home location. You say, where am I now? And where do I want to be? And you type in, I want to go to the grocery store. And it says, hey, it's going to take 20 minutes. That's just like what we're doing here. We're saying, where are you at now? And where do you want to be? We know you want to go to Boston Qualifier. And we're saying, great. Okay, that's going to take 90 days. And you know when you're trying to use a navigation system and it's like rerouting you down this lane and that lane and then one road's closed and it kind of tweaks and turns you, right? But ultimately, you're getting there. And as you get there, it gives you an update on your progress. That's just what we're doing here. We're going to give you an update, and we may have to tweak in four weeks and say, ah, we got to change the workouts. That road is closed. Like, this is not working anymore. Let's go to the right. Let's go to the left. This is exactly the same concept as trying to navigate to your grocery store. It's just performance navigation. Performance navigation. Awesome. Got it. As of December 1st, when I started this journey toward my BQ, uh, I was, at least on paper, if you do the math, on day one, 16 minutes away from meeting my goal, right? To, to run at least a 329. And ideally, to actually get a bib at Boston, I need to run like a 327. So can I, can I close a you know 16 to 18-minute gap at my age with the time that we have? We're sure going to try. I think the most important thing is that we need to make sure we don't get injured. And so we need to make, take a nice, gentle progression, not load you up too quickly, and then build that load in a safe manner. 
injury would be the number one reason we would not be able to attain that. So assuming we get past that, I definitely think it's feasible. Our whole team um, will work on all the aspects to make sure you can cut off those minutes and, and qualify. All right. Well, I'm in. I'm game. I'm looking forward to uh, giving this a shot and, and looking forward to, to working with you and the team. Thanks, Brett. You bet. We're excited. That's right. All I had to do was avoid injury. Two days after talking with Brett, I walked out onto our back patio to get ready for my 12-mile run. It was a beautiful morning, and I was so excited. Even though it was only the first week of training, I felt like I was really building up some momentum. Just like Coach Julia said, I changed up my pre-run routine. I did not do those leg swings first. I started with 10 squats and then began 10 walking lunges. Left, then right, then left, then right. But I guess I wasn't bending my knee as much as I should have because on my final lunge with my left foot out in front and my right leg trailing behind me, I felt this sickening tearing sensation in my right hip flexor. It was like two pieces of Velcro had been pulled apart, and it hurt. I yelled out, although I can't even remember what I said. But my wife and daughter, who were sitting at the kitchen table watching me through the window, ran to the door and said, what happened? I hobbled inside and for a brief moment thought, well, maybe I'll just go out and try this run. Maybe it will just warm up. But every time I took a step, it felt like a blade was being pushed into my hip. And I'd felt that blade before. A couple years earlier, I had a similar problem in my left hip. And I had to stop running for a couple weeks. So I hobbled into the living room and lay on the couch and tried very hard not to go down the mental rabbit hole. I texted Coach Julia and told her what happened, and she confirmed that, yes, not doing the 12-mile run was the right decision. She told me to rest and ice and get in to see a physical therapist ASAP. But it was hard to not go down the mental rabbit hole. Instead of going for the longest run I had done in months, there I was, crestfallen, pissed off, in pain, injured. It was week one. Now what? What was this problem? How long would I be out? When would I really begin training? That's for the next installment of Project Moonshot. If you missed part one of my Moonshot quest, you can find it in episode 38. And if you missed our coverage of Nike's Breaking 2 project, when three of their athletes are going to try to break the two-hour marathon, which has never been done, check out episode 33. We'll have an update for you on the Breaking 2 team's progress in next week's episode. Okay, it's time for The Kick with producer Brian Dalek and reporter Kit Fox. So we have a little bit of a surprise for you um, on the last part of the oh kick boy. this week, Kit. Um, I think you're really going to like it. We're going to bring it in a guest. It's not food. We might actually be quizzing you. But you're bringing in a guest? Yeah. So he will come down. Oh. But we'll be quizzing you. Get ready for that. But first, we should run through a few other things in this week's kick. I want to start off with a couple of records that were set 
over the past week. One on the indoor track. Yes, we are going to head to the Milrose Games, um, one of the most famous indoor track meets in the country. It yeah, takes it takes place, place in New York. In New York City, yep, every year. And um, we had an 800-meter indoor women's record fall. Um, Ajay Wilson, she's 22, ran a 158.27. Um, beating that previous mark by a half second, which, I mean, in terms of an 800-meter race, is essentially crushing that American record. And so Ajay, actually, um, you may recognize her from the Olympics. She made it um, for the U.S. team, was unable to advance out of the semifinals. But um, another really kind of cool fact is Mm -hmm. that Ajay's um, training partner, Charlene Lipsy, in that same race also broke the previous American record, took second, so they both kind of duked it out and uh, ran just an incredibly fast time. Yeah, their coach was saying before the race to them that he thought they could run 158, so they just tried to stick to that, and they really pulled through yeah, and you, got the job done. What your coach says, you got to do, right? Yeah, you got to follow through what yeah. your coach says. Um, another record, um, again, this happened late last week, so couldn't get into the kick, um, but the women's half marathon world record that went down as well. So a little bit longer distance, Kit. Only slightly. Um, at the, uh, So it was late last week at the RAK Half Marathon in the United Arab Emirates. Uh, Paris Jepchichir, she broke the world record in 105.06. That's three seconds off of the previous half marathon world record. She's the, 23. It was a stacked field, too. What is the mile pace on that? Yeah, that's always what people love to see on this. That's a 457-mile <laughs> pace for that half marathon. Yeah, that's um, crazy. So a new world record there. Oh, um, boy. Numbers just keep falling, like, all the time in all these distances. So it's Sub-5 people... pace, insane. Yeah. That's no. all I have to say. Another thing that's insane, um, moving on from um, the elite side, let's go to the fun side of racing. Not that elite isn't fun. It is fun. But, but this, this sounds is, more this fun. This is crazy and insane. <laughs> um, we've talked about the beer mile before on yes, the Yes, we're big fans. Um, recap, people, if you're tuning in for the first time and you don't know what the beer mile is. Yeah, so the beer mile, quite simple. Uh, it's four laps on a track. You drink a beer before each lap. Four beers, four laps, and a mile. It's not a very good life decision. No. <laughs> Sometimes can be very fun. No, it can be fun. Um but what could make it more fun or more difficult? It does make it more difficult. Yeah, someone – see, this is what's amazing. If someone was sitting there and was like, beer mile's too easy, <laughs> how can we make this more difficult? Yeah, and how so, did they do it? Yeah, so the Eau Claire, Wisconsin, Hash House Harriers, um, the past couple of years, they've decided to make it more difficult by doing a snowshoe beer mile. <laughs> so people race in snowshoes all the time. It's a normal thing. But to combine the beer mile with it is a new twist. So they make – kind of a quarter mile loop out in the field and they bring their group out and they do a beer mile. Something happens up north in the winter <laughs> with these people's minds. That sounds crazy. Yeah. Um, some fun facts to the snowshoe beer mile okay. is, um, well, I guess when they first did it in 2016, it was pretty much below zero with a wind chill. So they had to keep their beers warm in coolers <laughs> with heating packs. Um, Something it, I'd never heard of before. No, nah, I mean, usually want ice cold beer, yeah. right? Um, which is good, but you don't want it freezing, and that makes it extremely hard to drink. Because you know what would make this even more fun? <laughs> what? A brain freeze during the oh, snowshoe, snowshoe beer mile. <laughs> you're just going to stop in the middle, and instead yeah. of throwing up, you're just going to, like, 
pass out. Pass out, essentially. <laughs> um, so they have to keep their beers warm um, before they drink them. Um, the other thing is the times are significantly slower for a snowshoe beer mile. Oh, really? I, yeah. I imagine they'd get quite quite faster, mm, you know, <laughs> with the added cold and snow and snowshoes. No, the winning time um, this year when they had it for the second year in a row, uh, 14 minutes. Okay. Which sounds okay for when you're drinking that much beer and having to run a mile in snowshoes, but the beer mile world record is... Yeah, it's uh, f- 4 minutes and 34 seconds. So it's like three times yeah. harder to do it in snowshoes. <laughs> Um, maybe we need maybe we need to get some elite beer milers to try to, snow try to see what how they can bring down that time. Well, I mean, if we're gonna mess around with footwear, I think that mm-hmm. it's opened this whole Pandora's box of potential beer miles because I I want to see wood clogs, clogs. I want to see flippers. Mm-hmm. I want to see moon shoes. Moon shoes. Um, I think the moon shoe record would drop significantly under four thirty four. I think things would probably slosh around a little too much. All right, kids, so the final thing we want to do in this week's kick, um, it actually came up, uh, this idea came up last week during a morning meeting that we have. You weren't there that Playing morning. Hooky. Yeah, for you get to play hooky longer than 30 minutes that you were late. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, yeah, you came in a little bit later. Um, but we actually ended up quizzing each other on the top 10 biggest races in the United States based on finishers. Okay. And everyone in the room had trouble with this. Okay. And it made us think we should quiz you since you have not seen this story yet. Yeah, no, I haven't seen the story. we're bringing down a third member for the kick. Chris Craft is here. He wants to see... Quizmaster Chris Craft. Yeah, he wants to see how you'll do in this. And and you cover races for us, for the magazine. This so, would be embarrassing. This this could be embarrassing for <laughs> you. So, Chris, welcome down to the studio. Thank you. Thanks. And, Kit, yeah, you should really know these. <laughs> it's really, it's really he says that like my job is on the line Maybe. if I don't get them correct. Well, I, I guess I guess the best thing to do is just see how many you think you can do off the top uh, of your okay. head. Do I have to do them in order, or is it just like, like the 50 states type of thing where I can just name races and if they're in the top I think any order it would be more impressive if you did them in order but we'll we'll take any okay. any answer so that so yeah just name as many top 10 races as you can based on finishers and and we should say this is not top 10 marathons this is any yeah, yeah okay yeah um I'm gonna start with what I'm positive I know so Peachtree Ding. road race um Chicago marathon Ding. New York City marathon Ding. um uh Indianapolis Mini Marathon. Mm. <laughs> I, we got the in-house sound effects. That's thumb to David Willey, too. I think he thought that's the that biggest. It, it is the biggest half marathon in the country, but I guess it didn't make mm. it in there. Mm, that, that's also maybe not a correct fact. Really? And these numbers are based oh. on 2016. Ba- okay, based. Say. Okay, um, Boulder, Boulder, Ding. Four. Okay. Four. I think that's four. Uh, Twin Cities Marathon. Mm. Shoot. Uh, oh no! See now I'm uh, I'm running down. Uh, Falmouth Road Race, forty percent. Boston Boston Marathon. Ding. Okay. Uh, I'm 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 working my geography, working out to California now. Maybe a good move. That's and a good um, uh, Los Angeles Marathon. No. Um, stay out on the West Coast. Uh, Beta Breakers. <laughs> um, okay. All right. So let's take take a pause here. Kid. We have six. You, you've gotten six of the top ten so far. Okay. Okay. So you got four more to go. 
Should we give him any hints? Uh, well, let's just see what what else he. What well, I think we can give him the hint that I think that's all the marathon. That, uh, yeah, I, correct. That's, that's what good. I. That's what I that's thought. Good. Right. There's one I know that you're not going to get. <laughs> I'm just, just going to say right now, you're never going to get this one. Is there? Okay. Here's there's there is a race for the cure 5K on there, and I don't know where it is though. Eh. Shoot. <laughs> <laughs> I think we give him because of this can't stretch it yeah, yeah. eternally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think you get like um, how, we have you get four more left since you have four more race guesses left. Yeah. Okay, that's fine. Um, See, so yeah, I'm like out of okay, and I, and I will I will help you out here. Um, give me two or two are in the <laughs> northeast. Northeast, okay, and, and one is back on the west coast, and then the last one is in the southeast. Ooh, southeast. Um, Gasparilla the, Distance Classic. Eh. No, this is the one you're never gonna get. Oh, okay. Focus on the northeast. Focus on the northeast. You have three so guesses left. One is very close to Runners World headquarters. They actually, they both are about. Oh, Broad miles. Street Run Ten Miler, and then um, the other one in the northeast. It's got to be like. The Brooklyn Half Marathon. Oh, that was our good. last guess at the meeting. Right. So you have one final guess. You could finish at nine after, I guess, 50 race <laughs> guesses. <laughs> so Southeast or um, where West. did you? West, West Coast. Coast. I'm not going to go Southeast because apparently I won't get that one. Uh, I don't think there. It, I don't think it's in Portland. There's a wa- There's a race in Seattle. And yeah. I, okay. No. All right. Do you want to give him yeah, the final two? two? Sure. So the last, uh, the last two are the Lilac Bloomsday Run in Spokane. Definitely wouldn't have gotten that one. And then the one, yeah, that that I knew you weren't going to get because I I didn't get is the Cooper River Bridge Run in Charleston. South oh, Carolina. yeah, but I I know that race pretty well. I've yep. written about it before. Yep. All right. But I didn't know. Okay. So eight out of ten. Yep. Not, not bad. bad. You did better than I think we did in the morning meeting initially. So yeah. congratulations. Thank you. I think we can let Kit keep his uh, position in covering our races right. and giving people the advice on my, what races they should yeah, do. Yeah, good to know. My job's still safe. <laughs> yeah, we'll give Kit an overall thing. An overall right. thing. Yeah, Chris, 80%. thank you for the sound effects and providing the list. That was great. And Kit, thanks for doing the kick one more time. Sorry to put you on the spot like that, but That's all right. I think uh, we were able to quiz you and the world. Next time. Next time I'm going to get it. Okay, so just to recap, in order, these 10 races, number one, the Peachtree Road Race in Atlanta, 56,993. That's held every 4th of July. It's a 10K. Number two, the New York City Marathon, 51,267. And number three, the Boulder Boulder 10K, 44,671. Continuing down the rest of the list, the Lilac Bloomsday Run, Chicago Marathon, Broad Street Run, Beta Breakers, Brooklyn Half Marathon, Cooper River Bridge Run, and the Boston Marathon. The other cool thing, a lot For of these the record, races, the registration is still open. Yeah. For the record, you're uh, you're reading that off a list. That wasn't from memory. I just want people to know that. Oh, yeah. Definitely. <laughs> That's it for this week's show. But before we go, please, if you have not left us a rating or a comment in a while, or at all, we would be so grateful if you took a minute to do that. Your feedback helps us create a better show, and we read every single one. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. Thanks for joining us. This week's episode was produced by Sylvia Ryerson, Christine Fennessy, and Brian Dalek. Be sure to join us next week for my interview with Myrna Valerio. Myrna is defying all preconceived notions of what it means to be 
and what it means to look like a runner. I have my blog called Fat Girl Running and I'm a fat girl running. I know that I will probably never be thin. Um, and just based on genetics, based on the way I grew up, and then just based on my body type. That doesn't mean that I don't want to keep trying to attain the healthiest lifestyle and the healthiest life I, I can have. It's an incredible conversation. I hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.